This evening in your Bibles, we would invite you to turn to a familiar chapter, Isaiah 53. We'll read the chapter in its entirety. After we read from the Scriptures themselves, we'll also turn to the Heidelberg Catechism this evening to Lord's Day 15. And in your Forms and Prayers book in the pew rack, you can find Lord's Day 15 on page 216. So we read first from Isaiah chapter 53 and then Lord's Day 15. And as we continue tracing the states or the steps of Christ's humiliation, we come this evening to the consideration of his sufferings. We read as follows from Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Thus far this evening, our reading from the Word of God. We then turn to Lord's Day 15, which has three questions and answers. Question 37 asks, what do you understand by the word suffered? And that is answer, that during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Question 38 asks, why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? And the answer is so that he, though innocent, might be condemned by an earthly judge and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. 
And then finally, question 39, is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? And the answer, yes. By this death, I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me, since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know about you, but I personally enjoy from time to time reading uh, biographies, especially biographies of uh, church leaders, of theologians and ministers of a former day. Boys and girls, maybe you like to read. Maybe you don't like to read, but maybe you do like to read biographies. Maybe you've read a, a book about Abraham Lincoln, about his life, or George Washington, uh, maybe some other person, maybe a sports star or a more current president. And when you read a biography, lots and lots of details are often included. Sometimes they're interesting little details. Sometimes the author of the biography tries to give some insight into how the person came to think the way that they thought or act the way that they acted. Sometimes biographies can be short, but many times they can go on, page after page, maybe two, three, even 400 pages describing the life of a notable person. Consider then the Apostles' Creed's biography of the life of Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We might imagine there would be a description of his infancy. We might imagine there would be some details about his childhood. Uh, maybe also a chapter or two devoted uh, to his young years spent in his father's workshop. But instead of some interesting explanation of the life of Jesus Christ, the next word, according to the Apostles' Creed, is suffered. Now, suffering in and of itself is not unique to Jesus Christ. All of us suffer, and yet none of us suffer as Jesus Christ suffered. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. With a desire to be simple this evening, I want to consider with you redemption through the suffering of Jesus Christ. Noticing, first of all, what he suffered, secondly, why he suffered, and then thirdly, how he suffered. But isn't it absolutely remarkable that we talk about the eternal Son of God, who in the fullness of time became man, and we very quickly begin, according to a passage such as Isaiah 53, to talk about the reality of his suffering. Consider with me then, first of all, what he suffered. It's very, very important to understand exactly what he suffered. Jesus Christ did not just suffer misunderstandings. He did not just suffer the common woes and ailments that come upon a fallen humanity. He did not just suffer 
uh, some type of unpleasant experience through his adolescent years or his adult years. I want to try to categorize what the Scriptures reveal about what Jesus Christ suffered underneath two subheadings. First of all, Jesus Christ suffered the severe wrath of God. And then secondly, He suffered the righteous wrath of God. So when you ask yourself, what did Jesus Christ suffer? He suffered the wrath of God. Now what exactly is the wrath of God? We may say that the wrath of God is His righteous indignation, even His righteous anger, as one of His attributes, if we can speak of it that way, as we make theological distinctions, as His holiness reacts automatically by virtue of His nature against the atrocities of sin. Now, there are a variety of attributes that we consider from time to time concerning who our God is, but the one that we have to consider tonight is His holiness, and in connection with that, His wrath, His anger. And His anger is a vehement anger. That's why we've put in there in our subpoint the severe wrath of God. This is not just some light displeasure. It's not as if God looks upon sin and just says, mm, I kind of wish it wasn't that way, but it is what it is. Let it be. But by God's very nature in His infinite and perfect holiness, He reacts against sin with a most vehement anger. Now, I would guess that there's not many who speak about such a reality in our day. And so the big question, of course, for us, is this really what God is like? Or is this just some antiquated, long-gone understanding from a former, perhaps more ignorant age? Now, we understand Jonathan Edwards preaching in the 18th century about the wrath of God and about the fury of God. We might say, yes, in those days, you know, men were not as enlightened as they are in our day. So sure, back then they preached about the wrath of God. But we've, perhaps some say, we've come to understand that such a thing, maybe it's true, but it certainly shouldn't be spoken of. And so my one question for myself and for you tonight is, is the wrath of God a biblical truth that is revealed unto us? Is there evidence in God's self-revelation in Scripture that He is a God who is characterized by wrath? I suppose a variety of passages could be chosen. Uh, one that I've chosen is found in Psalm 21. Uh, if you are inclined to turn in your Bible to Psalm 21, we read from verses 8 through 13. And again, the question that we're trying to answer, is it true that God is a God who has a variety of attributes, one of them being His wrath, which is His anger against sin and against sinners? Psalm 21, verse 8 and following, speaking of the Lord, says, Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in His wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men, for they intended evil against you. 
They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore, you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. If we believe in the inspiration and the authority and the truthfulness of Holy Scripture, then we must reckon with the fact that God is a God who is characterized by a severe wrath against sin. Now, you might say, well, there are many a person in this earth who is also characterized by severe wrath, severe anger. Maybe we even see outbursts of wrath. The Apostle Paul speaks about the outbursts of wrath that characterize even human individuals. So the next question is, is this right for God to have this wrath? And that's why we've made as our second sub-point the righteous wrath of God. It is right for God to respond to sin with a holy anger because God is God. You could say it this way, if God was not characterized by a righteous anger against sin, then He would not be God. We understand this at some level when when we read about perhaps a a, a liberal judge letting some notorious criminal off on a very light judgment. There's something internally even as we bear the reflection of the image of God, there's something internally where we say, that's not right, that's not just. And so we, with a Christian understanding, with a Christian worldview, well, we don't congratulate judges who uh, just think, wink at notorious criminals. But we demand justice. And so much so when it comes to the being of God. God would not be God if He was not characterized by anger against sin, because sin is an attack upon God. It is a rebellion against God. It is a seeking and a desiring to upset the righteous throne of Almighty God. And so it is right for God to have wrath against sin and against sinners. And here again, I want to prove my point, so to speak, not simply by talking about it, but referencing you to Scripture. And so we turn first, if you're inclined, to Romans 2, verses 5 through 9. And here the question is, is it right for God to be characterized with anger against sin and against sinners? Romans 2, verse 5 through 9, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Notice that, the righteous judgment of God. This is not just simply an arbitrary judgment of God but a righteous judgment, that which is in accordance with his very character. Verse 6 continues, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immorality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath. And what Paul is saying is it's right, it's proper for God to be indignant and filled with wrath towards those who do not obey the truth, but who obey unrighteousness. Verse 9 continues, tribulation and anguish 
on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. So what did Jesus Christ suffer? The wrath of God. The severe wrath of God. And the righteous wrath of God. His anger against sin and against sinners. And as we transition into our second point, why he suffered, I just simply want to encourage us to pause and ask ourselves, have we and are we taking seriously this attribute of God's wrath? I can't help but think, and I don't know all of the backstory behind it, and I'm not coming out and speaking negatively about it, but the current ad campaign, he gets us. I can't help but every time I see that ad, ask myself the question, yes, but do we get him? Jesus knows who we are, but do we know who God is? And in our knowledge of God, do we still have a holy awareness that He's a God characterized by wrath? Because I assure you, you can never properly understood, understand what takes place on the cross apart from understanding the wrath of God. But why did Jesus suffer? That's our second point, and it could be summed up, I suppose, by 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He, reference to God the Father, made him, reference to Jesus Christ, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I want to try to break that general truth down by saying that Jesus Christ suffered as an atoning sacrifice and as a substitutionary sacrifice. This gets to the heart of the matter. What exactly happened on the cross? Not just on the cross, because rightly, the Heidelberg Catechism testifies that Jesus Christ suffered all of his life. All of his life in body and in soul. But especially in the final hours, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as the darkness of God's wrath came upon the human nature of Jesus Christ, and especially in the dark hours upon the cross when Jesus Christ cries out as His human nature, body and soul, begins to experience the infinite wrath of God compressed in a miraculous way upon a finite moment in time as Jesus cry, cries out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? And I understand there's a depth of mystery there that eternity will not allow us the time to plumb. But there is this acknowledgement that part of the answer, why have you forsaken me, is because the very body and soul of Jesus Christ, human nature, is being made an atoning sacrifice. An atoning sacrifice so that the sins of the people who are given to Jesus Christ might be covered in the sight of God. So that when God looks down with, using an anthropomorphism, when He looks down with His eyes, He will not see the sins of His people, but rather He will see the blood that has been shed by the sacrificial Lamb, the Son of God. And here we reference back uh, to the 
tabernacle and to the practices that were put in place. Uh, You can go all the way back to Exodus 12, uh, verses 12 and and 13. And again, uh, this is chosen at somewhat uh, random, not complete random, of course. That wouldn't be wise nor proper. My point is you, you can go to many, many, many a passage in the Old Testament to find the truth of a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. It's the very, the very fabric of the Old Testament revelation and also the New Testament. And in Exodus 12, verses 12 and 13, the Lord says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Notice behind that statement, there is the wrath of God. God says, in essence, my long suffering has been exhausted. I will move. And I will move in wrath, and I will move in judgment, and I will come and I will strike in my righteous vindication all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And then there is a remarkable statement in verse 13. Now the blood, that is the blood of the Passover, the blood that was shed, that all pointed forward to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And if I were you, I would go back to your home tonight echoing that statement in the very depths of your soul. The Lord said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. My wrath will pass over you. My sword of judgment will pass over you. My righteous anger will pass over you. And death will not enter into the house, but rather there will be life. He continues, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Why did Jesus Christ suffer? so that we might be covered, safe and secure, away from the wrath of a righteous God when judgment comes. Now, you may say, this sounds awfully barbaric. You may say, well, this sounds awfully antiquated. You may say that there's not a whole lot of pulpits proclaiming such a message. I'll agree with all of that, but I simply ask, is it biblical? Is it biblical? Is it true to say Jesus Christ suffered the wrath of God so that the people of God might be covered? I submit to you that it is biblical. It is true. Leviticus 17 verse 11 also says the same thing, referring to the day of atonement, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it, that is the blood, the shed blood, the atoning blood, the covering blood, I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And that's why, question and answer 37, by his sufferings, as the only atoning sacrifice. This is the only thing that can cover. You will perhaps remember that 
the revelation given in the book of Revelation is when the Lamb comes as the lion, when the Lamb comes again to execute judgment on the final day, the nations, they'll, they'll cry out for anything to cover them. They'll cry out for the rocks to cover them, for the mountains to cover them, anything. Now, now you think of perhaps avalanches, and you think of mudslides, and you think of large boulders falling down upon people, and that strikes you with a sense of horror. Who would want that? Who would want to be buried underneath an avalanche of, of large stones? The person who has neglected the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ but now faces the wrath of God is the person who says, give me stones, give me mountains, give me anything. But stones and mountains and mudslides cannot cover anyone from the wrath of God. Only the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ atones or covers or hides or satisfies. But more can be said about why he suffered, and we want to emphasize uh, this idea of substitutionary sacrifice or vicarious sacrifice in the place of, and it at times grieves, grieves me greatly that these beautiful, rich words and concepts are largely forgotten by the broad ecclesiastical world in our day. So you talk to someone growing up in the church, taught, educated in the church, and you speak of a substitutionary sacrifice or a penal sacrifice and glassy-eyed stare. What? What are you talking about? The reality that Jesus Christ took my penalty and my place, that's what I'm talking about. That's the very essence of the gospel. That's the very heart of the good news. This is what is stated, for example, in Mark 15, verse 15. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And what was Barabbas? A notorious criminal. An insurrectionist. Not only a robber, not only a thief, but a murderer. A murderer who was rightly condemned to die, but who on that day would go free. As I understand it, at the sentencing of a criminal condemned to crucifixion, the horizontal part of the cross would have been there in the judgment hall. The vertical or the upright post would have been permanently fixed at the site of crucifixions, but the horizontal beam would have been there. And when a person was sentenced to death, they would have had to bear that horizontal beam out to the place of the crucifixion. So there was, on that day, a horizontal beam for Barabbas, his death sentence. but his shoulders wouldn't carry it. His hands would not be pierced with nails. His feet would not be fastened to the horizontal or the vertical cross member. He would not die that day because someone else would take his place. And that cross beam would be placed upon the perfectly innocent Jesus Christ. 
and the nails would have pierced not the tendons of Barabbas' hands, but the tendons of Jesus Christ's hands. And Barabbas' soul would not be cut off from the land of the living in that day, but the soul of Jesus Christ in the wonderful exchange which we call the gospel. What do you understand by the words he suffered? That in my place condemned he stood. Isaiah 53 says it this way in verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. A word in passing into our third point. Some of us suffer much in life. But none of us suffer, nor will ever suffer, what Jesus Christ suffered. In my place, he bore the infinite wrath of God against sin. Well, how in our third point did he suffer? Here we focus our attention, especially at the end of his life. He suffered being condemned by Pilate. In the Scriptures, in our creed, and in our confession, Pontius Pilate, a vassal ruler, plays a very important, a very critical part. Much could be said about the historicity of Pontius Pilate and his rule. Uh, Allow me simply tonight to say this, that Pontius Pilate is put in place by the sovereign authority of God. Pontius Pilate was as wicked and as corrupt as they came but he served God's means. And the greatest act of injustice was from the heavenly perspective, the act of justice. Because consider what Pilate did. First of all, Pilate gave a clear, resounding testimony to the perfect innocence of Jesus Christ. In Luke 23, verse 4, so Pilate said to the chief priest and to the crowd, I find no fault in this man. It's a public declaration. Here is the spotless one. Here is the one who is suitable to be the substitute. Hebrews elaborates on it in chapter 7, verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. And so Pilate, with all of his political inclinations and all of his corrupt perverseness, has to, underneath the sovereignty of God, declare Jesus Christ perfectly innocent. And yet he then quickly goes on, and Pontius Pilate issues the verdict of guilt. He says, take him. Crucify him. And he orders for the the plaque to be put above Jesus Christ that would indicate for what He is being persecuted and ultimately crucified for. He is the king of the Jews. And that was exactly right. And that's exactly why he had to die. Because he was the king who was the priest and also was the prophet. And the king lays down his life for the good of the people over whom he rules by his grace into all of glory. And so he is sentenced, being condemned by Pilate, to crucifixion. 
Now, of course, crucifixion in its physical dimension would have been absolutely horrific. But no doubt much has already been said in a different context about the physical sufferings of Jesus Christ in his crucifixion. But what was especially horrendous was what the soul of Christ experienced, condemned underneath the wrath of God. In his human nature, body and soul, he experienced hell itself. And I know the grammar doesn't logically make sense, but theologically it's an attempt to stammer about this truth. The, infin- the infinity of hell is compressed and placed square on the soul of Jesus Christ as he hangs suspended between earth and heaven. A visible sign that earth has rejected him, but a visible sign also that heaven has temporarily rejected him. And so he hangs suspended, and darkness comes upon the hill outside Jerusalem as Jesus Christ suffers. Thanks be to God that the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is eventually followed by the declaration, it is finished. The divine nature of Jesus Christ upholds his human nature so that his human nature can satisfy an infinite hell. And he can say it is finished. And now, dear Christian, I lovingly call you to believe that statement of Jesus Christ, it is finished. What is finished? The satisfaction that had to be made for our sin so that God's wrath could be satisfied and we could have peace with God. But allow me also to say, because in the back of my mind, maybe not every time, but nearly most times that I stand in a pulpit, there ring the words of a minister who looked me square in the eye upon my candidacy exam, and he said, never forget that every time you preach, someone may hear the gospel for the first time or the last time. And so if these words find the ears of anyone who's not trusting in the sufferings of Christ for salvation, I plead with you, do so today. Nothing else can satisfy. Nothing else can save. Nothing else can make us right with God other than the suffering of Jesus Christ received by faith by a personal faith, by an exercise of faith. If you go back to the Passover, there was the shedding of blood upon the altar, which we might say is similar to 
the fulfillment of salvation, the accomplishment of salvation. But then, boys and girls, something had to happen with that blood. It had to be put on the doorpost of the individual home. And it wasn't until the blood was applied onto the doorpost that there was safety for the inhabitants of that home. And so if we were to go home tonight and say, oh, we heard something about the blood of Jesus Christ without having appropriated that or taken that by the personal exercise of faith that will profit us nothing. But if we find refuge, if we find our hope, if we find our comfort only in what Jesus Christ has done in his sufferings, well, then thanks be to God that there is peace. Peace both now and peace forevermore. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, what a wonderful mystery the gospel is, especially in the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ and his sufferings. Lord, so often when we come to consider uh, these doctrines and these truths, we must reckon with the fact that we, we stumble and we stammer. Uh, we peer into the deep mysteries of the accomplishment of salvation. But Father, give us understanding. Give us that true knowledge of faith. And give us also in connection with that true knowledge a, a sure confidence or a hearty trust, a reliance, a personal reliance upon the work which Jesus Christ has once and for all accomplished. We ask this for his namesake. Amen.